Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming, and we're here to keep you up on the literature by spoon-feeding you the latest research. Let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered from this past week. First off, out of the way COVID, we've got more antivirals than a new spoon-feed review of bacterial meningitis. After that, a time-old question diltiazem, or metoprolol to slow down your AFib patients. Following that, we have more on the crystalloid debate. And then finally, defib pad placement for AFib. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the blissful Laura Murphy, Cliff Freeman, and Clay Smith. And so without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Mole Nupiravir, an oral treatment for COVID-19 in non-hospitalized patients out of the New England Journal of Medicine. No, the pandemic isn't over yet, but every time we come up with a treatment, we get one step closer to returning to life as we knew it. That is until some other pandemic crops up, which hopefully we'll be better prepared for. Let's have a look at Mola Nupiravir. They did not name it to be easy to say. It's a nucleoside analog that inhibits COVID-19 replication. It's kind of like a piece of DNA, but not quite, which viruses don't tend to deal with very well because their replication machinery is pretty quick and dirty. This trial, the MOVEOUT trial, was a phase three double-bonded RCT to evaluate the efficacy of molnupiravir, being started within five days of symptom onset. The patients given the drug were non-hospitalized patients who were unvaccinated and had at least one risk factor for severe disease. The primary outcome was the composite outcome of hospitalization for any cause after 24 hours and death within 29 days. The treatment group had a 2.9% decrease in hospitalization or death, from about 10% in the placebo arm down to 7% in the treatment arm. That gives a number needed to treat of 34 patients. These patients were improving by day 5 of their illness course, showing lower viral loads at days 3 and 5. On top of that, there was no difference in adverse events between the two groups. This is pretty good, but the effect unfortunately is less than some other agents like Paxlovid that has also been studied. On top of it, because it's a nucleoside analog, it's thought to likely be a teratogen. So following strict contraceptive practices after treatment would be very highly recommended. So with those two things in mind, I doubt this drug is going to be first line, but the FDA did approve it if no other options are available. In a spoonful, molnupravir is a mouthful to say, and I think I'm only now just finally saying it right. And it's also an oral antiviral drug, which can decrease the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 in unvaccinated at-risk patients. Which brings me to the second article titled, Community Acquired Bacterial Meningitis Out of the Lancet. Aha, a good proper staple diagnosis of emergency medicine. Let's review bacterial meningitis. It's a seriously dangerous disease, and it is highly morbid. You honestly have to be an expert. But unfortunately, we only offer spoonfuls of information here, so we're just going to review the major points. The reason that this is such a classic diagnosis is because it used to happen all the time. But thanks to the miracle of vaccines against the most common culprits, we see much, much less of it. 
That said, it still happens, and particularly to those living in poverty who aren't afforded the same access to care and what we might consider basic health care. There is as much as a thousand times more cases in some impoverished areas in Africa than what we have here. As with all diseases, the classic signs are uncommon signs. Neck stiffness, fever, and altered mental status are only present in 40-50% to 50% of cases. The gold standard here is going to be a CSF culture, but even that's only positive in 85% of cases. The CSF analysis is what you're probably going to be basing most of your decisions on early on though, because this is what's going to come out much faster than your cultures. The classic bacterial pattern is going to be low glucose, high protein, high neutrophils, and high pressure. PCR is becoming more readily available than it ever used to be, and it's pretty quick. A CSF lactate might also help you in figuring out if this might be an aseptic meningitis. But before putting needle to spine in these patients, neuroimaging should be done if there's any concern for a high ICP. That would include patients with altered mental status, seizures, focal deficits, and those who are immunocompromised. Don't let this slow down giving antibiotics though. They can go to CT with an IV running. As for treatment, it's something you'll either have to look up or you might have memorized by just repetition by now. It is a classic exam question though, so if you're still in training, then there's a nice table up on the blog that you should commit to memory. In a spoonful, your brain is one of the last places that you want an infection. Treat these infections quickly and consider this diagnosis early so you can get an LP early as well. Then we have the third article titled Intravenous Diltiazem versus Metoprolol for Atrial Fibrillation with Rapid Ventricular Rate, a Meta-Analysis out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The population is aging, and you know what that means? That means that more people are getting AFib, that's what that means. It feels like almost, maybe most of my patients have AFib, at least on some days. We won't go into whether or not we should be shocking, not today, let's just focus on rate control. The most popular options are diltiazem and metoprolol, for which most staff that I talk to have very hand-waving justifications as for which one they're choosing. So let's see what the data really says. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of 17 studies comparing diltiazem to metoprolol. Altogether, let's see what they found. Diltiazem was more effective by about 11% at 30 minutes and 60 minutes, but there was no such difference at 10, 90, or 120 minutes. So diltiazem seems to mostly be working faster, and the p-values on these differences are pretty good, less than 0.01 by the way. On the trend of working faster, up until two hours out, diltiazem gives you a greater decrease in the ventricular rate, but after two hours, that difference equals out. Both medications show no differences in adverse events and no differences in blood pressure changes. In a spoonful, I guess that makes diltiazem the winner, but only because it's faster. And why walk when you can run, especially if it's safe? Then the fourth article titled, Balanced Multi-Electrolyte Solution versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults out of the New England Journal of Medicine. The BP's low? Give some fluids. Tachycardic? Give some fluids. Low urine output? Give fluids. Admitting? Give fluids. Sending home? Give some fluids. Okay, don't lick. actually listen to any of that. We give way too much fluids. The number of times I've seen someone hooked up to an IV when you could have just handed them a glass of water, it's unbelievable. Now, you'll have heard a lot about the balanced fluids versus NS debates recently because the basics trial came out a few months ago. But don't go thinking that that topic was done and over with. This was the PLUS trial. 
a double-blinded RCT of 5,000 critically ill patients who received either plasmalite 148 or normal saline in the ICU and then were followed for 90 days. The median volume received was 3.9 liters. What they found was similar to the BASICS trial. There was no statistical difference in the outcome of death over their 90-day follow-up period. Saline caused a higher chloride level and a lower pH, but there's no differences in rates of renal replacement therapy or changes in serum creatinine, which are possibly less patient-oriented than death. Now, even if you broke down the patients by illness severity, there was still no signal to be seen here. That being said, the authors speculate that the results of a concurrently published meta-analysis which included their data suggest that plasmalite likely has a relative reduction in the risk of death associated with its use. It seems reasonable to be using more balanced fluids. The theory is there, and it's not like there hasn't been any indication that it would help. It probably won't help a lot, let's be honest, but why not? I mean, price permitting, of course. In a spoonful, this multicenter RCT showed no difference in the risk of death or acute kidney injury in ICU patients receiving balanced fluids versus saline, but you have to consider all the data in aggregate. And finally, we have the last article titled Anterior Lateral versus Anterior Posterior Electrode Position for Cardioverting Atrial Fibrillation out of the Journal of Circulation. Uh, so when you see a nice scary patient, just put pads on them. Now, of course, most AFib patients won't be scary, but cardioversion is still one of the pillars of AFib treatment, so you'll want the pads on these guys too. Assuming that they fit all the right criteria, which again, we're not going to discuss today, what we want to talk about is where you're going to put those pads when you're cardioverting, anterior lateral or anterior posterior. This was a randomized open-label trial comparing two placement techniques done on 468 patients undergoing cardioversion for atrial fibrillation. This has been done before, but not specifically with biphasic cardioversion, so it's nice to see. The winner of the two was anterior lateral placement, at a 54% success rate compared to 33% in the anterior-posterior group. This difference was even bigger if the patients were obese or this was their first episode of AFib. There was no difference in safety outcomes. So in a spoonful, as you were a soldier... No need to do that awkward half-roll of your patient to put pads on them. Anterior lateral placement of cardioversion pads was the better placement for AFib conversions. Alright guys, that wraps us up. Let's do the summary. What did we learn today? From the first article, it's not exactly prime time, so you probably don't have to remember this tongue twister, but still, it's worth noting that molnupiravir showed some efficacy against COVID-19 with a number needed to treat of 34 for hospitalization or death, and was also safe in a carefully selected population. Second, bacterial meningitis, when treated properly, is very likely to save your patient a significant amount of morbidity. Oh, yeah, and um, get your vaccines. Third, AFib with RVR, you'll get faster rate control if you use diltiazem. If you're okay with waiting two hours though, then you'll probably get the same effect with metoprolol. Fourth, another negative trial for balanced fluid versus saline, no differences seen in this trial. The authors do point to a meta-analysis that suggests some benefit to balanced fluids though. And from the last article, one on the front and one on the side. That seems to be the best pad placement for cardioverting AFib patients. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get these daily spoon feeds through your email. 
Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.